all windows and doors of Wisconsin's energy-efficient windows keep the cold outside where it belongs, lowering energy bills. Right now, get 0% interest for up to 36 months when you order by January 31st at PellaWI.com. Jeff Wagner's 25-year career at WTMJ comes to an end. For the rest of the year, dive back in the archives with us as we bring you the best of Jeff Wagner throughout his career. You're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I swear my head is about to explode. It, it is lucky that my producer is behind this, this, this glass door. But, Eric Bilstadt, you are in the studio, and you have to brave this. All right, now, we, as we've been talking about right now, uh, there, this is typically, on, on today's day, it, this is typically a pro forma situation where the the votes of the various electors for the Electoral College are presented to the House of Representatives and the Senate in a joint session. They are adopted, and then you, you move on from there. There are a relative handful of Republicans in the Senate and the House who have decided that they believe that the results should not be certified. They have objected. And so now you, you have the, the two separate houses that have split off, and they will be debating this for hours. Who knows exactly how many? Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., there has been a rally going on from people who refuse to accept the results of the election. They have descended on Washington. The president spoke to them earlier. I played a clip, Donald Trump Jr., saying it's not the Republican Party anymore. It's the Donald Trump Republican Party. And if you don't do what we want, we're coming after you. All right. So now what is going on, as I look at the steps of the state capitol, is Eric Bilstadt? It uh, looks like they're trying to storm the building. Uh, they have locked down the U.S. Capitol. The um, Trump supporters are now all uh, covering the steps. They're up and down on some of the platforms there that lead into the U.S. Capitol. And this is happening as Congress is debating. In fact, we've been told, too, that some Congress people are sheltering in place in their offices, the ones that aren't on the on the floor right now because of this because of the lockdown that's underway. Actually, you know what these pictures remind me of? It reminds me of the Madison demonstrations for Act 10. You know where you had you had all these people that that descended into Madison mm-hmm. and people climbed up. It it is very very similar to that. Although there don't seem to be as many people. I, you know there, there's you know there's people lining the, the stairs and they're on the um, you know veranda and stuff and they're waving flags. It, it, I mean we're we're talking th- a couple thousand. Yep. We're, we're not talking hundreds of thousands of people though. And I don't it, think. No, I agree. I mean st- yes, a large mass of people. Uh, either way, but yeah, yes, yeah. in this case. So, but what found, you know, in the last 10 minutes or so, that's when this thing really ramped up. All of a sudden, you saw them running up the stairs to get into the Capitol building. And I guess one of the questions would be, what are you trying to do? I mean, the congressional hearings that are taking right place right now are to discuss the thing that you're trying to stop, and they're debating whether or not they're going to, you know, allow these electoral votes. So for them to go in and disrupt that, seems to be counterproductive anyway because you're disrupting the one hearing that's taking place that could potentially, although very unlikely, would stop Joe Biden from becoming president. Yeah. I mean, I, again, it's 
it it's sort of again I, I go back to ten years ago, remembering all the stuff that was going on in Act Ten, and I could sat sat in the same chair and behind the same microphone, and it was like, what what is the purpose of of all this? And you're you're right. I think in, in the beginning there was this thinking that okay, are, are people going to try to force their way into the Capitol? Which by the way happened in the state Capitol ten years ago, and and we all denounced it as being childish and petulant. And now I it's, it appears that there's more people coming, but again, there's lots of folks, but. But it's not a million people. It's, no, no, no. It, but the, the visuals are something else. So the Capitol is now on lockdown. And meanwhile, inside. The Constitution does not give the option. They're to the still vice just president. debating. <laughs> so even though there are some in their office sheltering in place, there's others who are still debating the merits of whether or not to throw out the Arizona electoral votes. Okay, so I got a text here. This, this, it, 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 it's always interesting to me where, where people's heads are at with this stuff. Okay, so the, the text was, I'm watching this. And a lot of people aren't wearing masks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yep. it's, like, that too? it's kind of like, okay, well, big picture here. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, yes, yes, there, there, many of them are not, in fact, wearing masks. But you do, you, you kind of wonder what the point of all this is other than, I say that, I guess, about a lot of the protests. What's, what's kind of the point of this? Well, and you wonder what's going to happen. So say the president-elect becomes president on January 20th. What, what's going to happen on that day? If you have this many people here today, will we see a, a different type of clash on, on the inauguration day? I mean, that's not, it's only, what, a couple of weeks away. Yeah, Mike, well, yeah, it's two weeks from tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. Is that, that, uh, Mike, my guess is that at least as far as a public demonstration in Washington D.C., this is probably like the 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 gasp. This is the I think so. Okay. Yeah, that's my, my death route. But it's you know we'll continue to keep you posted. At least initially, the concerns were people were going to try to force their way into the building. I don't think that's the case now. It's just people standing there waving flags yep. and yelling and chanting. Photo op. Oh, it, and it's it is an impressive. It, there's no question about it. It is an impressive photo op. Um, we've always said that democracy is messy. I, I think this might be as messy as democracy. You know, Eric, you were you were working here for Bush Gore. You were here in, in oh 20, sure yeah. in two thousand. Mm-hmm. I mean that. Mm-hmm. I, I what I thought was so interesting about about Bush Gore twenty twenty is despite how heated it was, and despite the fact that you you really did have significant legal issues. I mean, for for people who might not remember, I mean, Bush Gore, whoever won Florida won the election. There was that, a couple that, of hundred that, votes. Right. And it was it was a few hundred votes and these were contested votes and Florida had these antiquated voting systems. Hanging chads. Right, where you you'd have a punch card and you'd you'd punch the thing out yeah. and a hanging chad was be what if, if you didn't push the whole thing through. And then the question was you had people who like pushed the punch thing and there was an impression but they hadn't, you know, dislodged <laughs> it. And yeah. and so you had these images oh, of man. people like holding this up trying to figure out what was the intent of the voters. And you know it was a complete just a complete and total cluster and mm-hmm. it, 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 that's that what that's what it was but you know and you had passions that were really high because a, a swing of 500 votes determines who the next president of the united states is but but even after that went through the court system you didn't have any of that this i mean you know you you had our al gore conceded and well and that's you know, just it does that play a big role in that that gore did end up conceding for the second time right then he conceded twice technically well he and the, and the election night he made a call right. and then people said hey wait there's some stuff going on and then you but yeah after so he officially conceded yeah. whereas today you know the president was out speaking to this group of people outside the white house and outside the capitol urging them to find a way to stop this from happening there, there, you know 
you, you have just motivated me. There is a there's a piece in today's Wall Street Journal that I'm going to send out on Twitter in just a moment. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner six twenty, and it, it talks about Richard Nixon. And this is this is a history lesson that's before your time and and before I I was around, but I don't remember it. <laughs> okay, okay. In 1960, Richard Nixon was the sitting vice president under Dwight Eisenhower. He ran for president against John F. Kennedy. You know, we talk a lot about fraud and stuff. That race, to the extent there was a presidential race that may realistically have been stolen, that that was the race. Um, there were uh, this was Mayor Daley in Chicago, and it was the whole Chicago thing. And you know, historians have determined that there were all sorts of shenanigans that that went on with the Chicago machine that. And and also funny stuff went on in Pennsylvania. And historians have looked at this, and they've really kind of come to the conclusion that Nixon might actually have won that race, might actually have won the race. Okay, so Nixon, he's he's the vice president. He's doing what uh, Mike Pence is doing now, but it's him. You know, he's, And Nixon was under incredible pressure from a lot of Republicans to, to fight the results. You know, go, let just go to the wall, let's sue, let's do all that sort of stuff, because he, he may very well have been legitimately mm-hmm. ripped off by some of the shenanigans. And Nixon said, it's not good for the country. I'm not going to do this. And apparently, on on today, he gave this very eloquent speech, you know, wishing Jack Kennedy the, the best and talking about how important it was to come together as a country. And a lot of people say, whatever Nixon's faults were, it, it was one of the classiest acts they saw done by a, by a politician. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we should mention, if you missed it earlier today, Mike Pence did go up there and say that he had no power to overturn or throw out electoral votes. He said he would not do anything like that as VP. Yeah, interesting. Um, I will. And by the way, I'll, I'll take, I, I, I guess I had never known that story about Nixon. I mean, I knew all about the, the irregularities around the, the elections in, in 1960 and stuff. But um, for whatever you think about Richard Nixon, apparently on this day in 1960, um, very very classy act saying look it's just not for the good for the country to continue this fight okay back with more in just a minute stick around jeff it's eric brooks better known as crowbar for those of you that don't know i produced jeff's show for three years and it was such a transformative and educational experience working with him jeff you taught me so much about the business and showed me the ropes you helped me understand how to serve your dedicated listeners across wisconsin you're more than just a radio host to a lot of people including me And many of us can never thank you for the joy and entertainment that you brought into our lives for so many years, both on great days and in days that we will never forget. You'll be dearly missed, but I know Fran and your family cannot wait to have you around more often, though I somehow know there are more Wagner's rules of life to be learned in retirement. Cheers, buddy, and congratulations. It has seemed to me, and I've been saying this all during 2022, that it's been a tough year on celebrities. And I'm talking with, like, passing and it continues to be that. The news yesterday, Kirstie Alley, who um, she was in the first start, the first couple Star Trek movies. She was, you know, I think perhaps best known from either Cheers. You know, she was on there for five or six years or for the, the Who's Talking movies with John Travolta. She passed away at the age of 71 after a very short battle with cancer. But I, I after she passed away, I, I just said, boy, it seems like there's just been a lot of celebrities that passed away. And I went and I, I pulled out. Didn't mean to be morbid about it, but I pulled out the, the, the list so far. And of course, we've got another, you know, couple weeks here. Um, here are just some of the celebrities that passed away in 2022. Peter Bogdanovich, the director. Sidney Portier. Dwayne Hickman, who played Dobie Gillis. Bob Saget from, um, you know, the, uh, what was, uh, Full House and all that. Um, Meatloaf. 
uh, Howard Hesseman, probably best known as Dr. Johnny Fever on KRP in Cincinnati. Ivan Reitman, the, the producer. Sally Kellerman, who's probably best known for um, playing Hot Lips in the movie um, MASH. William Hurt, um, big movie star, maybe best known for his role in, in The Big Chill. Um, Estelle Harris, she was on Seinfeld. She played George Costanza's mother. And then Jerry Seinfeld's mother, the guy, the woman, Liz Sheridan, who played Jerry Seinfeld's mother. Gilbert Gottfried passed away. Robert Morse, who was probably made most famous by his Broadway role for How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, but he was a madman. He played the, like the, the owner of the, of this shop in Mad Men. David Burney, um, who was married to Meredith Baxter Burney for a while. Naomi Judd. I mean, the list just kind of goes on and on and on. Ray Liotta from uh, Goodfellows, who ended up passing away. Uh, Bo Hopkins, who was in American Graffiti and a number of other things as well. Uh, Tony Saragusa, who was like the commentator for the, the sports, you I mean, spent all those years, you know, working for that. Philip Baker Hall, who's just an absolutely great character actor. Tony Sirico, who, of course, was um, in The Sopranos. James Kahn, famous, perhaps most famous for being Sonny Corleone in The Godfather. Toreen Black, who was the, one of the detectives in Hill Street Blues, one of my very favorite movies. Paul Servino, who played all sorts of mafia figures. He was also in Goodfellows, and he passed away as well. Tony Dow. Tony Dow, of course, was Wally on Leave It to Beaver. You know, and the list goes just on and on. Vin Scully, who was the voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers forever. Olivia Newton-John, um, probably most famous for playing Sandy in Greece. Um, Anne Hesch, who, you know, passed away as well. It's just, you go through this, and it's just amazing the number of people who, you know, ended up you know, passing away. Maury Wills, uh, Louise Fletcher. Fletcher, she was probably most famous for playing Nurse Ratchet in the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where she won an award for Loretta Lynn, um, arguably the queen of country music. Angela Lansbury, of course. Robbie Coltrane, he played um, a number of roles, but he played Hagrid in uh, the Harry Potter movies. And it's just, I mean, the list just goes on and on of people who've ended up passing away. Jerry Lee Lewis, of course, he ended up passing away. Robert Clary, he um, played in Hogan's Heroes, you might remember. The comedian Gallagher, he passed away. And then most recently, of course, you had um, Irene Cara passed away. She was in the movie Fame and a number of other things. Christine McVie, we talked about that last week, from Fleetwood Mac, and now Kirstie Alley. Just a, a tough year for celebrities I, I really just want to focus and I, and I didn't give you the, the, the whole list and I'm sure you can find other people from the world of music or sports or uh, again whether it's film or TV who passed away gone but not forgotten in 2022 hey Scott Walker here congratulations to Jeff Wagner on a quarter century of airtime on news radio 620 WTMJ during that time he helped get rid of crooked politicians after the Milwaukee County pension scandal pushed back against liberals who wanted to let criminals out of prison early. And along the way, he kept listeners in southeastern Wisconsin well-informed as well as absolutely entertained. Jeff's also an active member in the community. He's a longtime member of the Milwaukee Armed Forces Week Committee and personally led a WTMJ CARES initiative, speaking with cancer patients, doctors, nurses, and researchers about their experience to help raise awareness about cancer screenings. Jeff Wagner is an icon in Wisconsin. 
Jeff, Tonette and I wish you all the best in your retirement. This list just goes on and on. That, of course, is Christine McVie, who passed away, what, last week or so. That was my producer Charlie's nomination. Did this list, and, and, and there's some names that I didn't read, but, for example, Michelle Nichols, who, she, she was Uhuru on, um, on Star Trek, you know, in the, both the TV show and the movies, and very, very famous civil rights activist. I would say Maggie Peterson, and you say, okay, who's Maggie Peterson? Well, if we all grew up watching the Andy Griffith show, right, or you've seen it in reruns and stuff, she was one of the last living members of the Andy Griffith show cast. She played uh, Charlene Darling, you know, the, the Darling family. That's she. Um, she passed away. Bill Russell, who of course, just you know, incredible basketball player, and again a leader in the civil rights movement as well. Bernard Shaw, who was the CNN main anchor in Washington, D.C. for the longest period of time. You just go through this list, and it's like, just wow. It's Now, uh, again, I don't know Bruce Souter, the, the baseball player. And one of the things is, I think, maybe you know, a lot of the people that, that passed away were people that were in their, their 70s and 80s, and it's just you're starting to see something about the, these baby, baby boomer stars who are reaching the point that they um, you know, ended up you know, passing, passing away. Let's see. Um, Christine McVie. Um, yeah, you've got that. Um, let's see. Um, uh, James Kahn because of um, in his role in The Godfather. All right, these are just some of the celebrities that passed away in 2022. Jeff, Sidney Poitier was groundbreaking in so many areas of film, stage, and civil rights. I believe he was retired, but I used to watch Guess Who's Coming to Dinner with my parents at least once a year. I consider him to be on the same level as Harry Belafonte. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, Harry Belafonte, the musician, but Sidney Poitier, not just for his role in civil rights, but all the great movies that, that he was in, whether it was in the heat of the night or Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which was the final movie of, with Spencer Tracy, of Spencer Tracy, who he died right after they finished filming that. And you, you watch those scenes, and especially if you know about the relationship that he had with Catherine Hepburn, it's really kind of touching to listen to that speech. But Lilies of the Field, I mean, just so many great movies with Sidney Portier, no question. Uh, Jeff, I would mention Betty White. I understand she missed 2022 by a day, but I would still consider her. A number of people are making the Betty White point. Jeff, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis? Yeah, I just, I mean, again, a lot of these people had kind of wound down, but, I mean, Jerry Lee Lewis, just an incredible talent. Jeff, I'm really going to miss Christine McVie. Not only could she write, play, and sing, but she did great cover art as well. She was incredibly talented. Jeff, do you think there were more famous people that passed this year, or were there people who became famous in that time frame that makes it look that way? Were they all baby boomers? Well, I mean, I think a lot of the people that you see are are baby boomers, and maybe it maybe it calls attention to this because it makes – all of us who are baby boomers as well kind of realize, you know, our, our mortality when you go, okay, well, you know, Kirstie Alley, for example, passes away relatively suddenly at the age of 71. And some people, and I understand, depending on who you are, you think, oh, 71, that's, that's just ancient. Or other people say, oh, 71, that's, that, that was a good year for me. Or that's not that far away. Um, I just, Howard Hesseman, you know, who was, again, the most famous perhaps for, for, you know, Dr. Johnny Fever on WKRP in Cincinnati. And even though that show only ran, you know, three or four years, anybody 
anybody of a certain age who ends up getting in radio, we're all, you know, we, we all ended up watching, we all ended up watching that show. And the thing that anybody who's in radio that watches WKRP in Cincinnati always looks at is they, they never have their headphones on. And if you do radio, you, you, you can't do it. I mean, I'm wearing my headphones. You cannot do it without that. So that's kind of like the suspension of belief. They're all in the studio. They're all on the air. Nobody's wearing their headphones. But um, that's what you have to uh, do. Jeff, it was certainly a tough year for gangsters. Yeah, it was. I mean, when you think about, okay, James Kahn, of course, from The Godfather, but also think, I, I think a lot of people would argue, you can always have really interesting discussions about what's the greatest mob movie ever made. And I, I think two that have to get consideration, of course, The Godfather series, but also Goodfellas. And when you think about, you know, Goodfellas, you've got Paul Sorvino, who played the Pauly character, the boss, one of the underbosses, and then Ray Liotta. I mean, both of them passing away. Jeff, for me, Tony Dow. I I always, you, you always wonder, with the, the Tony Dow, who, of course, did a lot of stuff, but, you know, Tony Dow was always going to be known as the older brother. He was always Wally in, in the Leave it to Beaver show. And you wonder... You know how you come to grips with that—that that no matter what you do in the rest of your life, people are always going to look at you and say, "Hey, Wally, you know where where's the beeve or something like that." Jeff, all this just goes to show you're only in the world for a visit, so you need to address it that way. Jeff, don't forget—you know James Conn was in The Godfather, but he was also in Elf. Yeah, that's right. You're starting to see a lot of the Elf shows around here as well. Um, Jeff, Tom Petty. I think Tom Petty, I think he, I don't think he was this year. I think Tom Petty was last year. Jeff, you didn't mention Queen Elizabeth. That's true. Queen Elizabeth passed away as well. She's probably the most important. Um, yeah. Jeff, for me, it's the rapper Takeoff. Um, yes, he did. Um, Jeff Taylor Hawkins, he was the drummer for the Foo Fighters, a great musician with a wonderful, optimistic, uh, personality. A couple people are mentioning that jeff you know you're getting old when you now watch one of your favorite tv shows from your youth and all the actors have passed on <laughs> well, there, there there is there is that element i i will tell you when i when with the andy griffith show i didn't i didn't realize that there were any people other than ron howard who played opie i didn't realize that there were anybody who was like at least featured in that show who was still alive i thought when the woman what was her name? Betty Lynn. She played Thelma Lynn, Betty something or other. When she passed away a year or two ago, I thought that that was um, pretty much, I think that was pretty much it. But a lot of people are there. So it, when I saw, again, Kirstie Alley's passing, I thought, man, you know, 71, and apparently it was a, it was a relatively sudden thing. I think she just got diagnosed with cancer relatively recently. We don't know what type of cancer it was. I'm sure that's going to come out. Louis Anderson, the comedian, passed away. You go through this list, and if you want to, if you want to feel old, especially if you're a baby boomer, just just Google Google a list like this and start going through them. And I just I just kind of scratch the surface. There's all sorts of other people as well. Again, 2000. Any year where Ray Liotta and Christine McVie and Meatloaf and Jimmy Kahn. And a whole bunch of other people, Angela Lansbury, any year where those people pass away and curse the alley, you know, it's just it's just not a good year for celebrities. Um, and again, it does make you appreciate what one of our texters said, that we're we're all just visiting. And you got to remember that when it comes to living your life. 
Hi, Jeff. Tracy Johnson here. Congratulations on a tremendous career and congratulations on your retirement. Thank you for everything you've done for our community and the impact that you've had on the way we look at the issues. Think about the news and think about the world. I especially appreciate the opportunity to have worked with you first on TMJ4 and then on 620 WTMJ as a fill-in host. You've given me so many opportunities and I can't thank you enough. You deserve the best that retirement has to offer. Time with family and friends and even on the golf course. So congratulations, cheers, and hit them straight. We, we have talked a couple times on this program about the fact that I think for a lot of us nowadays, we're, we're hitting kind of a, a wall. It's tipping fatigue. You know, we've discussed the fact that nowadays, I don't know, you, you, go, you go to the Brewers game, for example, and you go through the self-service kiosks and you grab a bottle of beer or a can of beer out of one of the containers and you go up and you pull out your credit card at the self-service thing and it asks you if you're going to tip. And the question becomes, okay, who am I going to tip? I understand that there's somebody standing there in case there's a problem, but I, 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 I it was a self-service thing. Why in the world would I, I tip? And yet, wherever you go nowadays, where you pay with the credit cards, you get that little thing that says, you know, do, do you want to tip? I fully expect it. This morning, I stopped off at my local drugstore because I had to pick up a prescription, you know, and I, I go and I give them my name and stuff. And then there, there's the thing that comes up and it says, okay, you know, you got to give the last four digits of your telephone number to identify yourself. And then it asks if you want to make a donation to something. I fully expected that I was going to see an entry asking me if I wanted to tip the woman behind the counter who was giving me my, my prescription medicine. But it didn't. But you know that that's coming. So, I mean, I think there's a question of, of tipping fatigue. And a lot of people, the other term is kind of like guilt tipping, things that you – just never under normal circumstances would have, have been expected to tip. Now, you know, there's almost this expectation and you're kind of pressured into this by, you know, they give you that thing and you put your credit card in it and it's like, okay, are you going to, are you going to leave a tip? I mean, yesterday, yesterday morning, I stopped off at a quick trip to put gas in the car. You know, I pull out my credit card, you know, I put it in there. I fully expected that right after it asked me if I wanted to have my car washed, it was going to ask me, do you want to leave a tip? I mean, and the question is, well, why not? Why, if, if we're, if we're tipping, you know, the people at the self-service kiosks, you know, why, why aren't I tipping the attendant who's behind the door at the, the quick trip? Didn't do it yet, but I'm, that's where we are leading, which brings me to this story. There is a new restaurant that is opening it that is opened in Madison. Um, and they have announced that they are going to have a no tipping policy. What they're saying is that they have made the decision that they are going to pay their staff a sufficient amount of money. So the expectation is that you do not need to tip. And this is the way it works in, I, I don't want to say all of Europe, but this is the way it works in many, many countries. You you are not expected to tip. You go in and the cost of service is built into your bill. And it might be, I don't know, it, it might be you might round up maybe, you know, if it's a deal where, you know, your your coffee is eight euros or seven and seven dollars and let's say it's seven and a half euros. You might round up to eight euros or something like that, but you're not expected to tip 10 or 15 or 20, 25 percent. That's not built in. And one of the ways they can always tell the Americans is people come and they add an extra 20 percent to the bill, which in most at least many European countries isn't how they do it. So anyhow, this this restaurant in Madison that has opened up, it's called Sultan. 
and um, it the owner of the restaurant says, "Okay, here here's the deal. We are we are a no tipping restaurant." They say that employees are paid higher wages than traditional servers and bartenders, and they don't need tips to sustain their income. Um, the owner says, I don't think the customer should have to subsidize my workforce. I believe people should be paid what they're worth. Okay, which, which all sounds good. Well, here's the deal. Staff are paid $20 per hour plus profit sharing. Each customer receipt says tipping is not necessary and credit card slips don't have a spot for the gratuity. Okay, so here, here's, that's it. They say the, the behind the scenes person, the back of the house people, they, you know, the, the people that are the dishwashers and the cooks and stuff, they, they love it. The people who are the servers aren't necessarily as thrilled about it because in many cases, they can make more than $20 per hour, but that's his policy. And he says, well, I don't think customers should subsidize it. Well, the, the point, though, is customers do subsidize it because you are going to have to, in order to pay your employees $20 an hour, you're going to have to charge significantly more for what you are selling than if you were selling stuff and paying your employees like four bucks an hour and then having them go on tips. So the restaurant owner, the restaurant patrons are in fact paying for it. They're just paying for it in a different way. Would you rather, from your perspective as a customer, would you rather go to a restaurant where tipping is expected but voluntary and have lower prices for food or would you rather go to a restaurant that essentially tells you no tipping, but that 15% or the 20% or whatever it's going to take to get to $20 an hour is built into the bill? No tipping restaurants, but understanding that your cost is going to be a lot higher because the cost of service is going to be built in or the ability to go pay less, at least in a base price, and then, you know, leave the tip yourself. This is the best of Jeff Wagner, highlighting the best moments of a 25-year career on WTMJ. Jeff Wagner's 25-year career at WTMJ comes to an end. For the rest of the year, dive back in the archives with us as we bring you the best of Jeff Wagner throughout his career. You're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Well, I hope you had a great holiday season and a very happy new year. Again, it's uh, the, the time just goes by. It was two weeks that I ended up being off, and I, I did spend some time in the repair places. Like I say, I caught a truck throws up the stone, hits my windshield, and that started a couple uh, couple trips to the ultimately the windshield repair store. And it's not like the old days where you know they can just slap a piece of, of glass in and replace it. Now it's these high-tech windshields that have to be safety calibrated and all this type of stuff. And, of course, they're three times as much money as the old sort of windshields were, but what can you do? And then, yes, that story I was telling a couple minutes ago was true. It's like we've got an open house on New Year's Eve, all these people coming over. My wife sends me down to the basement about 5.45. Hey, bring up some folding chairs. You walk down there, and there's this big puddle of water. That does not belong. And then, of course, it, it's like, okay, 
you're in denial. Maybe there's not as much water as I think there is, but no, there, there's a lot of water because this hot water heater that candidly had been our house, the, the condo that I live in is a side-by-side condo. It's like a house. had been built in like 2004, and the water heater was original equipment, and it just decided that it was going to burst or have a leak or something, and it chose New Year's Eve probably around 5 o'clock to do that, but no problem. Got the plumber out, and Adam came in, brought in a new hot water heater, and by 9 o'clock, we were good to go, and it gave me an interesting story. But it's like, I swear, some of these appliances, they know. They know when it's New Year's Eve. They know when it's Christmas Eve. You, you can't notice the leak at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning when it's easy and not double time to get people to come out and fix stuff. No, it has to be on New Year's Eve or whatever. But all's well that ends well. Like I say, I hope you had a great Christmas and a great New Year. It is 2020. We start my fourth decade of doing a radio show. Start of the fourth decade, and I have been looking forward to it. Okay, we do not go gently into the good week. One of the things that I do, even when I'm on vacation, is not not as intently as I do when I'm doing the show on a daily basis, but I do try to keep up with current events, and I amass a series of stories that I find to be interesting, and I hope that you will as well, and we're going to work our way through them. So some of them might have broken a week or so ago. Bear with me, because I think they're still extremely interesting. Let's get started. Hubbard Park Lodge. Hubbard Park Lodge is, it's a restaurant in in Hubbard Park. It's not open all the time, but they have a brunch. They have Friday fish fries. It's actually quite good. All right, Hubbard Park Lodge in the news because they decided, hey, what we want to do is we want to, we want to kind of jump on board this new trend that's going on. For example, there's the cafe uh, at the Benelux Cafe in the Third Ward. They they have like those snow globes, and you can sit on the roof and you can be on a snow in a snow globe, and you know you can eat outside during during the winter. And it's a very very popular thing. So at Hubbard Park Lodge, what they decide is, hey, we wanna we wanna capture this experience. We want people to be able to still be outside during the winter, but be comfortable. So one of the things that they've done is they said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get a couple tents, and we're going to erect these these tents. And what we want is we want them to be such that you can put a fire pit in the middle of the tent, and the idea that, well, people, you know, you'll have this heated structure. So people will be able to go out. They'll be able to use the heated structure. They'll be able to get food. They'll be able to hang out outside this fire pit, and, you know, you can rent them out. Okay, makes sense. How could that be controversial, you might ask? Well, it's become controversial because in choosing the particular type of tent, what they decided to do is they decided to go with the, these these tents that are essentially they're 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 like they're like teepees that would be used by can you still say Indians in 2020 Native Americans you know they're, they're the traditional sort of teepees so they're not like a pup tent but they're they're round at the bottom. And, you know, they kind of go in it. They're in a cone sort of shape, but they're perfect because there's for what they're trying to accomplish, because there's more space at the bottom and you can put the fire pit in and people can kind of gather around the fire pit. Right. That that's that's the idea. So they want to use this so people can rent them out. That's the whole plan behind this. 
I don't think anybody, at least certainly not the people that were putting these up, felt that they were controversial until Hubbard Park announces, you know, here, this is what we've got. We've got these these tents that you can rent. They call them tall timber tents. But, you know, you could also, if you would look at this, you would say, hey, this looks like a teepee. All right. So the problem is that you have some of the perpetually offended and the politically correct who are outraged that Hubbard Park is using teepees for their domes as their heated structure. And the argument is this is, wait for it, cultural appropriation. How dare, how dare anybody who's not Native American use one of these quote-unquote teepees or tall timber tents. It's okay to use them for ceremonial purposes for Native Americans, but this is monetizing the culture. And, uh, And it is terrible that people that are not Native Americans would be renting these type of structures and using them. Now, I have a confession to make, right, over the break. Um, I I enjoy Chinese food. I, I do, I do. And um, historically, a couple of my sisters-in-laws and brothers-in-law, we get together over holidays and we go to our favorite Chinese restaurant. Go to our favorite Chinese restaurant downtown. Wonderful place. And we order all sorts of food that we like. And you know what? On a, We did that over this weekend, over the, over the holidays. And you know what? I know how to use chopsticks. I do. Now, I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm a, a middle-aged white guy, but I know how to use chopsticks. And you know what? I was using chopsticks. So am I guilty of cultural appropriation? Really? I mean, you know, it's so frustrating. I'm getting a number of texts who are making the point about, like, the, the snow globe type of things. Should Should people who are Eskimos, for example, should they be offended by that? Because, okay, is that cultural appropriation? Again, is it cultural appropriation to use chopsticks if you're not... Um, you know, Chinese. Well, all right, I'm going to continue to use chopsticks because I like them and because I can. And the idea of renting a tent and having to apologize for the type of tent is incredibly uh, frustrating. Jeff, at Kohler Andre State Park, there's a teepee that's actually called a teepee. And people need to book that site a year and advance to get it. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with this at all. Jeff Wagner's 25-year career at WTMJ comes to an end. For the rest of the year, dive back in the archives with us as we bring you the best of Jeff Wagner throughout his career. You're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We live in interesting times. I think a couple lessons are becoming clear after the weekend. First, let's get this out of the way. As we've been discussing for a number of days now, I think everybody, everybody can agree that the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis a week ago in police custody was a homicide. I don't, I don't. No, we can argue about whether it was first-degree premeditated murder. Was it third-degree homicide? We all agree it was examples of police misconduct. The man who is responsible for this has now been charged. He will be brought to justice. At least you hope he will be brought to justice. But I think we can all agree 
that this was an example of police misconduct, which raises questions, I think, that need answers. How could something like this happen? Is it systematic? Is it isolated? So let's let's agree with that. This was wrong, and the police officer has been charged. He is in custody as we speak. So to the extent people are saying no justice, no peace, well, the, the justice system is working the man has been arrested. This isn't an example of somebody going scot-free. He's in custody. So you have that, and that is appropriate. I think we can all agree with that. I have not seen any commentator on any side of the aisle, whether it's liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat. I haven't seen anybody trying to justify that terrible videotape indicating what, again, I believe is a homicide. So let's put that out of, out of the, the question. It's wrong, needs to be addressed. The other question then becomes, what do you do by the general, how do you gauge the general public response to this? And as happens all too frequently in this country, where you have an example of apparent police misconduct, you see people that will take to the streets and they will express their outrage. That is an important part of America, the ability to freely protest. And that, that is, that is important. You wonder sometimes what the objectives of some of the protesters are, what are they really trying to accomplish with the protest. But people have a right to protest. There is no question about that. And I think in many, many, many communities across the country over the last several days, you have seen the vast majority of people who have exercised their First Amendment right to protest, and they have done it in a peaceful and a responsible fashion. Now, I understand we're living in the era of a coronavirus pandemic, and we have all these rules about mass gatherings. But those rules apparently no longer apply, but that's, that's all right. I, I understand that to try to apply coronavirus standards in the wake of such large public outrage would be completely and totally inappropriate. All right, so let us also agree that the vast majority of the protests which have been conducted and the people who have gone out to protest have done so, at least in my opinion, in a responsible fashion, which brings us to that small percentage of the people who have been, well, I I will use the term opportunistic. They are not protesters. They are rioters. They are opportunists. They are criminals who have used the guise of the protests as an excuse to burn, to loot, to rob, in general, to cause chaos. Now, authorities have a a difficult time because, at the one hand, you do not want to. On the one hand, you do not want to overdo it. You you don't want to restrict people's right to engage in legitimate, peaceful protest. People want to march, they want to chant, they want to sing songs. That, that I think, is appropriate, and it needs, and I think, you know, law enforcement needs to give people a wide berth within which to do that. That's why over the weekend when Mayor Barrett, for example, in Milwaukee, you know, put in curfews, I, I understand what he was trying to do. Part of the problem, though, is what's the good of, of putting in a curfew of 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. if you're, you're not going to enforce it until midnight or 1 o'clock in, in the morning? But nevertheless, I think the Milwaukee Police Department, by and large, did a very, very good job of allowing the protests and the protestors to exercise their First Amendment rights. Now, there was a little bit of violence in Milwaukee, but I think they did a reasonably good job of trying to keep that under control and in trying to find the appropriate balance. There are other communities that did a lousy job of this. Saturday night, 
Madison was complete and total chaos. Matter of fact, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I, I sent out a, a link to one of the stories about what went on in, in Madison, where you had 75 or more businesses that were vandalized, looted, or both, along with break-ins at businesses way away from the riot that occurred in downtown. Clearly, you had people in Madison and we can argue about what percentage of the people it was. But you had people in Madison who decided to use this as an opportunity to, uh, again, loot liquor stores and grocery stores and pharmacies and things of the like. Um, interesting, uh, there was a, a piece in the, the newspaper describing what happened in Madison, and it says, about an hour before two squad cars were destroyed and one engulfed in flames, Madison Police Chief Wall said arrests were not planned Saturday night because police were outnumbered and did not want to escalate tensions. Let me read that sentence again. About an hour before two squad cars were destroyed and one engulfed in flames, the chief of police in Madison said arrests were not planned Saturday night because the police were outnumbered and did not want to escalate tensions. Let me translate this to you. All right, yes, the protesters, you guys are fine, but anybody else that wants to come out, and if you want to loot and burn and steal, just go ahead, because we don't have any intention of trying to stop you. And as a matter of fact, that's pretty much what happened. My understanding is Madison, during the riots on Saturday night, yes, that's the word I'm using, he only made a total of three arrests. How can you only make a total of three arrests when you have 75 businesses being vandalized, you have squad cars being set on fire, all these various things? In Minneapolis, which has been the, the center point, ground zero, of course, for, you know, what's going on around the country. You know, Minneapolis spent day after day after day where you had the rioting, you had the looting, you had the arsons that followed the peaceful protests. It's only now starting to get under control in Minneapolis because finally over the, the weekend, you had a huge police presence. You saw thousands of Minnesota National Guard members combining with law enforcement officers from all over the state. And what they did, they were on foot, they were in police cruisers, they were in military Humvees, they were in helicopters. And what they did is they fanned out to try to disperse crowds to stop looting and violence before it began. They used tear gas, projectiles, they handed out curfew violations instead of waiting to contain the unrest. So they decided in Minneapolis to get proactive before you could have the, the continuation. Now, they didn't do that the first several nights, and you saw looting and you saw burning. But now they've decided, look, we, we, we just can't let this go. We've got to be proactive, and we've got to get ahead of this. There's a lot of people out there that are sympathetic to the overall and the overarching theme of, you know, here you have another example of, in this case, a black man who dies in police custody at the knee of a white police officer. There's lots of people of goodwill and good faith who are completely appalled by this. But at the same time, when you turn around, on every time you turn on the television or listen to the radio and you hear stories of, okay, these buildings are being burned and looted, and here police cars are being set on fire, and somebody just you know committed arson on a police station, all right, it, it doesn't help the cause. Hi, Jeff. It's a longtime producer from the early days of the program, young Dan. I just wanted to congratulate you on your pending retirement and a successful 25-year run at WTMJ. I hope you enjoy retirement, and let's get together for a Todd Snyder concert. Take care.
It's 934, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Brewers in the middle of a pennant chase, which is something that has everybody thrilled. I was at the game the other night when they beat Pittsburgh um, 8-1. to Just an outstanding game. Had a lot of fun watching that. Um, and now the news that they've got extra, essentially three extra home games coming up this weekend. We're joined by Brewers Chief Operating Officer Rick Schlesinger. Rick, good morning. Morning, Jeff. How are you? I am well, thank you. Hey, at the beginning of the year, did you ever think? Did you ever really think that it was going to be this close and this exciting coming down to the end of the season? Well, you know, we're we're always optimists in this <laughs> business, and frankly, you know, you 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 always look for for surprises. You always look to be relevant, and yeah, I mean, it's it's great to be in this position. It's it's fun. It's stressful. Every pitch counts. <laughs> uh, you know, people are excited. That's sort of what we're in business to do. You know, to to create miracles and, and it's been a fun year and we've got some work to do and obviously we have some games here that uh, we didn't have on the schedule but we're, we're preparing for them yeah let's let's talk about that for people who might not be aware the brewers were supposed to be in miami playing the marlins this weekend obviously everybody knows about you know hurricane irma and uh, apparently miami the miami marlins in consultation with major league baseball made the decision that, that they don't think the game should be played there this weekend because they don't want to divert police resources from arguably more important things not saying the baseball is not important. So the games end up in Milwaukee. So let's talk a little bit about what baseball is going to look like this weekend in Milwaukee. Well, we're going to, it's going to be a little different because we're the road team. So that means we bat first and the Marlins have the last chance in the bottom of the ninth. Uh, so, uh, but we will still be in our home uh, clubhouse. Uh, we'll still have the sausage race. <laughs> we will still make it feel like a, a Brewers experience. Uh, you know, the key thing for us is to make sure that everybody's safe, that we can accommodate the people and that we have concessions operating and we have staffers and ushers and all that. So uh, I think the goal is to obviously make it feel like a Brewers game, like a Brewers experience with the uh, sort of twist that uh, we're technically the road team. Mm-hmm. Now, Rick, there in, in order to accomplish that, there's going to be a limited number of tickets sold. For example, Friday night, only 10,000 tickets are being sold. Right. Right now, uh, the plan is uh, for having the field level, the first, the lowest section of the ballpark, which has about 10,000 seats available for sale simply because uh, on short notice to, to staff uh, the other levels poses some challenges. And we want to make sure, again, that we're fully staffed, we're fully operational. And erring on the set of caution for Friday night, it's just the first level for the the Saturday and Sunday games, we're going to be able to open up the loge level, which will add another 13,000 feet uh, tickets. So we'll, we'll have 23,000 tickets available for sale for Saturday night game and the Sunday day game. One of the things that I thought was so interesting about this, Rick, is that the, is the pricing of the tickets. Um, you, you've got, because of the short notice and all the different factors, you've got some special pricing that's involved with the seats. Yes, right now, uh, field diamond box, which are our best seats right behind home plates on the field level, are twenty dollars. And for a normal game, those those are obviously much higher uh, by a factor of four. And if it was a Cubs game, it might even be a, by a factor of seven or eight. Uh, the next best seats on field level, the field infield, as we call those, those are the seats between the bases. Those are fifteen dollars, and every other ticket is ten dollars. So that will be field outfield bleachers and loge level all levels so uh yeah the prices are obviously very fan friendly uh our, our our thinking here was um this is a scheduled this is unscheduled game short notice we want to get as many people as we can to these games create a great atmosphere 
uh, and obviously value pricing is part of that equation. Well, you know, I, I think that this is actually such a great opportunity for people. And I, I understand Miller Park is extremely affordable, and you do all sorts of things. But the reality is there's some people who love to go to Brewers games, and, and maybe those, those field-level diamond boxes are, are a little bit rich for their blood. This gives people an opportunity to sit in some of the very best seats in the house for a, a very manageable rate. I, I, can't, I imagine a lot of people are going to want to take advantage of this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's one of the goals is, you know, let's let's get people who, who love baseball, uh, who are obviously excited about the, the playoff chase and excited to support the team. And let's get them in seats that maybe are not even available on the open market because they're usually reserved for season seat holders or for corporate sponsors or just not easily for average fans. So this is an opportunity, like you said, uh, for people that have amazing seats. Uh, very affordable prices, and, and watch you know a, a team competing for the postseason. Now, logistically, it, it's got to be somewhat of a nightmare for you. How 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 do people get their tickets? I mean, if I if I want to go to a game Friday night, I want to be one of those ten thousand people. What do I have to do? Well, the good news is we have uh, Brewers dot com. The best way, and a lot of people buy tickets already, is you go to Brewers dot com. You can print at home, or have your uh, tickets um, downloaded to your um, your smartphone. Uh, also, you can call our phone center, 902-4400, and they can get tickets electronically sent to you. There's always the box office. People, the old school way of people actually coming to the box office and buying, buying the hard ticket right there. We, we encourage people for these games in particular to buy in advance. Uh, go to Brewers.com or go to you know mobile devices and download the Brewers app simply because I think we expect a lot of these tickets to go fast, and I think we want to avoid long lines of people trying to buy tickets to the box office. But, yeah, the old, we won't be able to obviously mail tickets out like we would in other games. Uh, so electronic delivery, print at home, or box office is really the way, way to do it. When do the, t- the tickets aren't – the tickets are going on sale in a little bit, right? Am I correct? Yeah, 10 a.m. 10 a.m. So Brewers.com is probably easy way, the easiest way to do this. Um, yes. You know, I, I got to tell you, I think that Friday night game in particular, and I, I, I have no doubt you're going to sell all 10,000 tickets pretty quickly. I, I think I can't imagine what it's going to be like to be in that stadium where just the first level is filled and everything else is going to be empty. That's going to be an interesting experience. Yeah, you know, I think it's it's uh, it, it's going to be a little different because, you know, obviously we don't do that generally, although for exhibition games, uh, which is obviously a different atmosphere, uh, we do, you know, have the system where we sell field level first and fully sell that out and then open lowest level and the next level. So there has been some exhibition games in Miller Park where, you know, you've had, you know, the lower bowl, the lower bowl completely full and just a smattering of, of tickets above. But, yeah, this this will be a little interesting. And, and again, I, I think that, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're excited to, to see the turnout. Uh, it's, it's, again, we're asking people at the last minute to change their plans. But uh, one thing Brewers fans do is they're nimble, they adjust, they love baseball, and they love a good deal. So I think all those merge into what I think will be big crowds for this weekend. And there's a, there's a one-size-fits-all price for parking, right? Yes, $10, uh, no advanced parking, and first parking spot available be the first one filled. So there's no premium parking. It's literally 10 bucks. But, again, for people that are used to parking very far away, uh, if they get to the ballpark early, they'll find they'll be parking very close to the ballpark. So, again, it's a, a little bit of a different experience then maybe a fan who's who's not able to access the best seats or the best parking, they're going to find that they're going to access the best seats, 
and also very good parking. Hey, Rick, while, while I have you, I I, um, I scour the corners of the Internet so most people don't have to. And one of the things that's, <laughs> one, that's my service to, to everybody, one, one of the things that's out there is, is there's this undercurrent. I mean, forgetting the fact that there was a hurricane in, in Miami, this is really what caused this. And you have, you know, the, these bigger issues. One, one of the things that's out there is people saying, well, baseball, Major League Baseball shouldn't have moved the games to Milwaukee. If they had to move the games, they should have found a, a neutral site, Atlanta, you know, Baltimore, Washington, what, what, whatever, um, some stadium that would be available because it, it's an unfair advantage to the Brewers in a, in a pennant chase. I mean, what, what was the dynamics behind this decision to the extent you know? fair question and I think you know traditionally I think the baseball does look to try to move games like this to a neutral site we have some precedent um, of that already given the situation in Houston and then most recently with Hurricane Irma um, you know most recently Tampa Bay and Yankees relocated their series from Tampa Bay to New York now albeit it was at City Field the Mets home and not Yankee Stadium but I still think the New York Yankees had a home field advantage obviously playing in a ballpark nine miles from their own um, I wasn't privy to all the details and the, the behind-the-scenes discussions between the Marlins and Major League Baseball. Uh, I, I, I imagine neutral sites were examined, but one of the things that baseball has to be careful about is making sure that the games get played. And if, if we had been relocated to a site and there's a weather issue, uh, the, the weather would have impacted our ability to play. We have a retractable roof, which gives us the advantage of ensuring that these games get played. The last thing baseball wanted to do is move the Brewers and the Marlins to a neutral site and have a rain out or two causing a missed games because those then would have to be made up at the end of the year. And you can imagine all of the chaos that might have caused if those games had playoff implications. Right. Well, plus, I, I not to answer my own question, but I also have to imagine that, as, as you've been talking about, there's an this is an incredible logistical challenge that I understand you willingly take. But it's like we, we, we've got to staff the stadium. We've got to find the ushers. We've got to find the confession, concessions. We've got to distribute the tickets. If you were to have moved on a two- or three-day notice to a neutral site, it, it's almost tough to expect how they could have asked the, the your counterpart in Washington or in Baltimore or wherever to have done all the stuff that you've done and are going to have to do over the next 48 hours. Yeah, absolutely true. I mean, it's hard to do. The other thing, and I don't know if this played into baseball's thinking, is, you know, we on very short notice in 2007 and again in 2008, we hosted games uh, due to weather, and obviously we were not involved in those games. It was Angels, Indians in 2007, Cubs, Astros in 2008. But I think baseball was was impressed by how our our people adjusted, staffed, and and by the turnout of our fans to games. So I think baseball said, well, you know, one thing we know about the Brewers in Milwaukee is they can pull this off at short notice. And you're right, logistical challenges are significant, but uh, our people are great. Uh, we have incredible, dedicated, loyal, hardworking employees, and, and everybody's working overtime to make it work. Well, that's it. My, my guess is you're not going to get a lot of sleep in the next 48 hours. That's kind of my guess. No, probably not, but I haven't been sleeping much anyway because uh, <laughs> not only am I you know, watching our games, I'm also watching other teams and seeing what they're doing, and especially in the West Coast, right. uh, you know, watching the Rockies and in Arizona, you know, there's you got to have multiple sets of eyes, and you got to have uh, a lot of stamina because these are not times to be sleeping. Well, for people who don't know, it's more than just a job for you and and a lot of your colleagues in the, the front office. You're, it's not just a job; it's not just a business. You're a huge fan as well, right? I'm not sure, other than perhaps Mark Atanasio, there's anybody that lives and dies more with you know pitch by pitch by pitch at the Brewers game than you. 
I think that's probably true. I, there's probably a tie with a lot of people in our front office, and, and my colleagues at work used to always tease me because I'll, I'll say in the game in April, this the whole season comes down to this next pitch, and, and I say that so often it becomes sort of you know uh, a little bit of a cliche. But you know, I grew up loving the Brewers. I'm from here. Uh, I live and die with them, and and uh, it's it's really part of my DNA. And obviously, to be working for the team is, is an incredible privilege. And when you're playing meaningful, high-stress games in late September, um, you know you got to pinch yourself, and, and you, you can't really take advantage of the fun. You have to do your job. But after after it's done, you can look back and hopefully have some fond memories. Uh, Rick Schlesinger, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, go Brewers! Thanks, Jeff. Hey, Jeff, it's Steve Wexler here with hearty congratulations and a couple quick thoughts on your radio career. I have always appreciated your common sense, your authentic approach. You never tried to be something you weren't, and the audience knew it. That's one of the reasons you have been such an important and successful voice in our community and on our station. It has been a real pleasure. It's been an honor being part of your talk radio journey over the years. I join all of your Good Karma Brands teammates in wishing you and Fran all the best. And may I personally just say thank you for being part of WTMJ's amazing legacy. 245, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, Pop Culture Corner. I wish I still had the car. People are texting me pictures of themselves with those cars. Dana sends me one. 1936 Buick Special, original engine, transmission, and interior. Dire financial straits made me sell it. I miss it. <laughs> Jim in Franklin. Jim, you're first. Hello. Hey, Jeff. I wish I had my 1968 Mustang. Oh, what color was it? Uh, well, I bought it. It was powder blue, but I had it repainted to uh, midnight blue. Okay. And uh, that was a sweet car that I had uh, my senior year in high school at Homestead. And <laughs> um, then I went to UWM on the east side, and I was going coming back from church at St. Peter's and Paul. Right. And um, I totaled it. <laughs> you totaled it? Oh, my yeah, God. <laughs> but uh, I wasn't going fast. It was no. a fender bender, but it... it Slammed the radiator into the fan. Yeah, that was all it took for the insurance company to total it. So after yeah. that, I had a, a green a grasshopper green uh, Mustang too, which was something yeah. <laughs> something else. Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting. My my dad at one point in time went through a, a car collecting mode, and he had I, I want to say it was like a seventy Mustang, and it was it was that light color blue too that you're talking about. And then then he had like a seventy four Mustang convertible, and I actually like the I like the convertible. That that was kind of that I, like he's going to allow me to drive it, right? But yeah, it was it was it was a fun car to spin around in on occasion. I like the convertible. Thank, thanks for going. But yeah. I mean Mustangs. I mean man, that's I mean back in the day, you know the Mustangs, and of course then you you had the Firebirds and Camaros before they wrecked them. Yeah, Renee and Waukesha. Renee, good afternoon. Hi, I miss my turquoise blue 71 Buick Skylark. Renee, you and I didn't date in high school, did we? No. <laughs> the reason I ask is because, I mean, my, my first girlfriend in high school, she had a 71 turquoise blue, honest to God, Skylark. And she was a year older. She got to drive. And so we started dating when I was a sophomore and she was a junior or, or ju- she was a sophomore and I was a freshman or whatever. But she had wheels. I mean, there was an appeal and she drove that Buick Skylark, too. I loved it. It was amazing. Mine had a white vinyl top and uh, not white. It was like a cream color, and the seats inside were cream colored also. And it was the most amazing car I've ever owned. It all oh, was so fun to drive, and it looked so cool. You know, everybody would always 
wow, that's a really nice looking car. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, th- they, I see. I, I mean, all I remember is I was dating a girl who had wheels. I mean, I was like a freshman in high school, and and, and she had a car, and her parents let her drive it, and all that. It was that was we, we we had mobility. There was that appeal. Jerry in West Bend. Jerry, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Jerry. I had a '66 Volkswagen Beetle. <laughs> okay. I know it's not a hot rod or a fancy car, but I love that car. It was dependable. Like you, I'm not a mechanic. Yep. That thing went through anything in the wintertime. Um, the simplicity of the car, I don't know if people know a lot about the older Volkswagens. Um, the, 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 engine was, the engine was in the, it was in the rear for those cars, right? Right. Yeah. It did, it did not have a heater. <laughs> you, you'd have to reach behind you and... Underneath the back seat, there was some um, fence you'd open up, and then you'd crack the wing window, and that would create a draft coming from the engine, pulling the heat off the engine and bring it into the car. <laughs> it didn't have a windshield washer. It had a hose that plugged into the spare tire, and you push a button on the dash if you wanted windshield washer. But what that was, you had to make sure that you always kept air in your spare tire. Right or or, or else. No, thanks. Look, I, I'm look. I'm, I'm a huge fan of. Uh, I'm a huge fan of, of VW Beetles, and as a matter of fact, I, I I owned one until until recently. But uh, it, it was different. Now the ones they make have the engines in the front and things like that. But very dependable. Mike in Bayview. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. The car you wish you had was a '69 Roadrunner. Ooh, that was the one with the big engine, right? Yep, I had a I had a 383 inside of it, and uh, it was everything was stock. But uh, when I went down to when I I went to high, I had that in high school. When I would go down a block, you know, I just had the purdy engine. It was a dual exhaust. <laughs> that car that car was just so nice. It really was. It was it was just just oh. fantastic. I should have kept it. But oh. one day I woke up and uh, parts were all stolen off of it. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Well, you know that's that's one of those cars. That I, I think collectors still look for those Roadrunners, um, just because I mean some of the original American muscle cars, right there. Oh yeah, yeah I saw I saw those cars on uh, on uh, you know the car auctions on TV that they show, and I I look at those and they go in for a hundred and twenty, hundred thirty, <laughs> hundred forty thousand dollars. I'm going, oh god, <laughs> <laughs> I should I should have kept it. I should have kept it. No, thanks for the call. I get it. Let's talk to Bill in Baraboo. Bill, thanks for listening. You're on WTMJ. Thanks, Hi. Jeff. I'm going to talk about my car, my first car that I ordered from the hometown dealer when I was in Vietnam. It was a 1969 Pontiac GTO, mm. the most beautiful car I've ever driven. Yep, yep, yep. Oh, and was it waiting for you when you got back? It was waiting for me when I got back. I, I went down and paid for it the, the day after I got home and left it at the dealership because I didn't trust myself. <laughs> went back the next day and picked it up. Uh, how long did you drive it? Oh my gosh! I don't know, uh, five or six years, and sold it to my younger brother. Okay, okay. It's a, it was one of those where if you could go back and go back in time, though, you'd, you'd be driving one of those Pontiac GTs, huh? Absolutely, GTO. GTO, right? It's you know, I yeah. thanks. For, I owned a. Um, Gosh, yeah, I'm trying to think of when it would. I owned a Firebird. It was a green Firebird for one. My problem was the year. The year I it, it was a. It was a mechanics. The thing was breaking down all the time, and it's just I. It was a cool looking car. It was a fun car to drive. It was a sporty car to drive. It was just always, always, always in the shop, and finally it kind of wore me down. Let's see. Let's talk to uh, John in New Berlin. John, you're on WTMJ. Hello. 
Hey, hello, Jeff. You're, uh, the car you wish you still had? Uh, my 1958 Chevrolet Impala. You had a 58 Chevy? I did. <laughs> wow. I bought it in 1967 from uh, a friend of mine who got it from a school teacher that was trying to repair it and couldn't get it fixed. He had some problems with the lifters. However, I got it fixed. I paid $75 for it. <laughs> now, what's unique about this car is, you remember your Impala was the first year that came out in 1958. It was kind of their Starship car. Okay. You know, full power, power brakes, power steering, power windows, a big V8 engine, automatic transmission. That was kind of the norm for that car. Mm-hmm. This car had no power steering, no power brakes, no power windows, a straight six-cylinder, three-under-three overdrive. Okay. So it was very rare. Yeah. Huh. But it was. I drove it for about a year and a half, and I didn't have to put a lot of money into it at all. So I think I maybe had 150 bucks invested in it with the purchase of the car. Oh, oh, and you had a lot of fun. Now, they, I mean, they, they're the, like the, okay, you're 58 Chevys, very, very cool. And see, you, when you say things like you're talking about now with, with that, with like no power steering and no power brakes and no power windows, people nowadays look and say, what do you mean? They really sold cars like that? Yeah, and it's this is the time way before Al Gore invented the Internet where they actually had television televisions that were still black and white. Let's talk to Tony in Sussex. Tony, you're in WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Okay, the car you wish you still had was? My 1972 Lincoln Continental Mark IV. Okay, a big one, a big cruising car. Yes, sir. I bought it in 1989. Me and my, uh, my friend, we took a trip up to Blackville because I was seeing if I was going to go up there and play football. On the way back, we saw the car. It was in a lot being sold for like $1,500. <laughs> I talked her down to like 500 and drove it home that day. <laughs> oh, and you must have been styling in that car, I can imagine. You have no idea. <laughs> I'm like, I love that car. But I only had it for like two and a half months because I allowed my brother to drive it for less than one day. He managed to take it out one day and wreck the entire front end. <laughs> See that you, you, you trusted your brother. Thanks for going. You screwed up. You trusted your brother. A uh, car I wish I still had. Um, I had a Honda Prelude. It was like a nineteen eighty four, maybe it was like a nineteen eighty four Honda Prelude. A little car, but it was stylish. It was fun. I liked it. Honda changed the Prelude. Ended up, you know, killing the model and stuff. But I love that Honda Prelude. Um, I kind of like the car I've got right now too. But this is sort of fun. It's the way people just uh, relate to automobiles. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner's 25-year career at WTMJ comes to an end. For the rest of the year, dive back in the archives with us as we bring you the best of Jeff Wagner throughout his career. You're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I hope you understand that the historic happenings that are going on in the U.S. Capitol today, we, we have... I think for the first time, for the first time in history, you have the second effort at impeachment of a, of a single president. I, I was, I've been thinking about this. I have to tell you, after after last year and the failed impeachment effort of President Trump, I sort of put in the back of my mind that for for my radio career, that's pretty much it. You're you're not going to see any more impeachments. I mean, I I remember I started. Matter of fact, I was here at WTMJ doing this show during the the impeachment of Bill Clinton that was in December of 1998 and if you might if you recall he was he was impeached 
by the House of Representatives on charges of perjury and obstruction of justice. That was in, in December of 1998. And that, that's when, I mean, I've been doing talk radio at other places, but I, I, I just, I really just started the show full time. I mean, you, you start the full time show here and all of a sudden you're dealing with the impeachment of a president. He was ultimately acquitted, um, in, in February of 1999. Um, again, in the Senate, you need a two thirds vote to convict and, um, he was acquitted on both the perjury and the obstruction of justice charges. Then, of course, you had the situation um, a year ago involving President Trump, who December 18th of 2019, he was impeached. Um, the allegations were abuse of power and obstruction of justice. He was acquitted in February of this year on, on both of those charges. So I, I kind of decided and I thought, OK, that, that that's it. We're certainly... In the foreseeable future, there, there's not going to be any more acts of impeachment, and and now that is not the case. You have, unlike unlike the Clinton impeachment and unlike the first Trump impeachment effort, that were were drawn out proceedings. There were there were there were there were hearings that were conducted. There was fact finding. There was a lot of debate over the articles of impeachment and things of the like. This one. This one is on the, the absolute fast track. I mean, keep in mind, it was a week ago today that you had the insurrection at the Capitol, and, and here we are one week later, and there's already, they're having the arguments on impeachment, and we're being told that the actual vote is going to occur sometime between 2 and 2.30 our time, and we'll, of course, be dipping into that coverage as well. In a little bit, I, I do, and I understand we, we've discussed the possibility of of impeachment in a couple different contexts over the course of the last couple days, and I understand that there's some people who say, well, we don't want to talk about this anymore. We want to talk about other stuff. Well, this is historic, and we will be discussing the ramifications of impeachment in just a little bit. And like I say, if you want to talk about something other than that, well, that, that that's fine. There will be time for that later on. But today there's going to be a lot of attention on what is going on in Washington, D.C., because, again, it, it's it's historic and there's so many different avenues of it. I want to start, though, by talking about something beyond the, the impeachment, because here, here's the deal. Regardless of what the House of Representatives does today and the smart money says there will be a vote, it only takes it only takes you know, 50% plus one to impeach. Now, then the matter goes to the Senate where there is the trial and the Senate decides whether they convict or, or not. Like I say, in the case of Bill Clinton, he was there was not sufficient votes to convict him. In the case of Donald Trump, there was not sufficient votes to uh, convict him either. What, how that all plays out, you know, who knows? But regardless of what happens with impeachment, President Trump's term ends in a week. I mean, a week from today, we're going to be talking about the inauguration of Joe Biden. That's going to happen regardless of what the House does today, regardless of whether the Senate acts over the course of the next week or not. But for the moment, President Trump is the president. And again, the smart money suggests that nothing is going to be done to remove him from office before next Wednesday. That means he still has a lot of power and a lot of different things that he can do. And one of the things that is being debated and discussed is whether or not President Trump, who has used his pardon power to bail out a lot of friends, associates, cronies, you, know, you can use whatever word you, you want, whether or not 
in the last week, he will use his pardon power to issue blanket pardons for his family members, for some of the people who have been around him closest, like the Rudy Giuliani's of the world, and a lot of discussion about whether or not he will take what would be an unprecedented step and attempt to issue a self-pardon. It's never been done before. Some legal scholars think you can't do it. Some say, well, no, you, you probably can. Can and should President Trump make broad use of the pardon power, including pardoning himself? Now, you can only pardon yourself for federal crimes, not not state crimes, so that doesn't do anything to you know deal with like problems you might have with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office on taxes. But you can issue a pardon, which, for example, if you were concerned that you might be subject to federal criminal charges for inciting a riot or insurrection, you could clearly issue a pardon. Should Trump pardon himself? I think it would be disastrous. Jeff Wagner's 25-year career at WTMJ comes to an end. For the rest of the year, dive back in the archives with us as we bring you the best of Jeff Wagner throughout his career. You're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. All right, Aaron Rodgers for the last 30, 35 minutes answering questions openly, giving his perspective on what has been going on, your reaction to what you heard. Let me just kind of give you a quick summary. He he talked about how after the season ended, February, he wanted to be more involved in conversations about his, his job. He was upset that the Packers hadn't retained players that he thought were key to the organization. He said these were high-character guys who were not respected, and um, he was saddened by the way the Packers treated him. Interestingly, in, in one of the follow-up conversations that one of the writers said, he said, well, you know, a lot of these guys that they let go, they, you know, probably it was a smart move. They, they went on to be paid a lot of money, and they underperformed and things like that. And Rogers said, well, maybe if they'd been here and I'd been throwing the ball, they, they wouldn't have underperformed. Um, he said he wanted a commitment for the 2021 season and beyond, didn't want to be a lame duck quarterback, and wanted to be involved in conversations regarding free uh, agents. He said that um, he's passed along information in the past that he felt hadn't been used. He wanted to be a recruiter. He says people are coming to Green Bay to play with me. It says, by March, nothing had really changed, and his thinking was, if I'm not a part of the future, let's move on. It says, after the draft, the Packers offered him money. Um, he said this wasn't about money. He said he wanted to be a resource. Um, he said, look, he thought maybe there'd be a conversation about extending his contract, you know, guaranteeing him that he'd have the job beyond 2021. He said that didn't happen until May. He says nothing happened during the summer. He was deciding if he wanted to keep playing. Um, thought about retirement. Um, enjoyed taking some time to work on himself, but he felt that, you know, he still had a big competitive hole to fill. Doesn't know if he'll be a Packer next year. Um, things haven't changed. Uh, he wants to, re- if things haven't changed, he wants to revisit the conversation at the end of the year. He did say a couple times he doesn't consider himself a victim. He's been paid a lot of money. He said it's a tough business. He just wants to go ahead and enjoy this season. Um, he says that, um, 
the organization, you know, he said, if he could summarize it, he says the organization wants him to play. He thinks he should have more input, thinks he should be in conversations at a higher level. Yeah, he says, if you're going to cut a receiver, you should include me in the conversation. Um, that that's He thinks that he should have input in that. Um, and you kind of get the idea. He said that, you know, he, he was not responsible for a number of the leaks about this. Um, he said he wants to be involved in the conversations. He believes he could be used as a pseudo consultant. Um, all right. I, I'm kind of summarizing that. Uh, it, it's very, very clear to me that. He's not, you know, no matter how you paper this over, he's still got significant issues with the Packers organization, and he's not shy about sharing them. I said, wow, because I've heard a lot of press conferences involving, you know, sports figures, you know, over the years. And a lot of times when you have the press conferences, the, the players go out of the way to say absolutely nothing. To just say kind of nothing and no, we're all happy and this stuff was all blown, overblown and things like that. That's not what Rogers said. Rogers, I think, kind of laid out his perspective in great detail. All right. This is obviously one of the biggest, if not the biggest story, certainly in Wisconsin today. But let's let's turn this program into a little bit of a town hall for a segment or two. Let's start with Jeff and Oconomowoc. Jeff, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I love listening to you because you are one of one of a few honest media persons, and that's why I like talking to you. So, thank you. I just want to say I, I believe Aaron was speaking from his heart, and that uh, I, I get his point on. He knows the personnel so well, all the players, every player he knows well. He's in the locker room with them. He, as he stated, he knows the people that take care of the gym. He he gives an effort to talk to people, where where some mm-hmm. some people might think they're too too high that they mm-hmm. shouldn't be talking to a guy that cleans the gym and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And just his insight, I understand uh, business that uh, the guys on top make business decisions, but I also worked at a plant, a huge plant. And when we got a new plant manager that made it his point to come down into the plant every day, and he he met me once, and I told him my name. He came back about three, four weeks later, and he remembered my name and every person that he met mm-hmm. because he wanted to get a feel from the people how things were going and and. It could help him make a business decision. Okay, Jeff. Well, let me ask you. Let me, and I appreciate what you're saying. Let me. Let's take your example, though. Let's say, let's say at that company you worked for, they've got to do. They're they're thinking about getting rid of five guys that are working on on your shift. Do you think that he should call you in that plant manager and say, Jeff, I'm thinking of getting rid of Bill and Frank and Harry and and Louise here. What do you think (laughs) about that? (laughs) I mean, okay. No, that would be wrong. He should be there, and he should see how these Bill and Mary or whatever work. And if he sees that maybe their motivation uh, descended after, because he would right. get to know these people, and then he could make his decision. Yeah, if if people aren't motivated anymore, you need somebody in there that's motivated. Right. And and all Aaron Rodgers said was he didn't want to be in on the decision making. 
He wanted to just give his insight. Right. Being with the experience that he had. Just ask. So, yeah, just, just ask. Like no, I said. Got it. Thanks for call. I, I want to get to some other calls, but before we have to take a break. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I understand it's... I mean, that that's what, what Aaron Rodgers said, is he would have liked to have been consulted. He would have liked to have been given input before, you know, you, you cut a, a particular player. Uh, and I guess I, I wonder what that means if, if you're invited to offer input and then that input is, is ignored. Does that create the same issue? But I don't know. It was a press conference by an athlete like um, like no other that I have heard. Back with more in just a couple minutes. Jeff, Vince Vetrano here. I enjoyed so much in my days when I was at TMJ4 when we'd wake you up early to get you to come on our show. Always valued your perspective so much. And to share this studio with you has been an honor. Congrats on 25 years and best wishes for all the good stuff ahead. I am super jealous of how good you're about to get at golf. Take care, my friend. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. So very glad to have you with us. We start the program with breaking news, and I mean breaking news. Just announced a couple minutes ago, well, the Brewers making a a big announcement that I think a lot of us are going to view as being extremely bittersweet. And we are joined right now by the general manager of the Milwaukee Brewers, Doug Melvin. Doug, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Very well, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm out at the State Fair. It's kind of like opening day. You know, it doesn't get a lot better than that for me. Um, with the cream puffs. With the cream puffs. Yeah, yes, if my doctor <laughs> is listening, I, I try to keep it in check. Doug, um, big announcement just coming out um, about, I, I guess the best way to be described it would be a, a succession plan? Yeah, that's basically what it is, Jeff. And, uh, you know, been a general manager for 20 years now. I'm turned 63 been in baseball 42 years and uh i i loved uh doing this job in milwaukee i'll continue to work at a high level of energy but it's uh important for me to uh, give mark atanasio a heads up that uh you know there's a point in in my career that i do want to move on in a in a lesser role mm-hmm. uh, with the organization and it's important to um uh, Give Mark that heads up because when he came in here as owner, he did not have that opportunity to hire a, uh, someone in charge. I was here, so uh, basically, it's the the next generation of of someone in the front office for Mark. And um, from that standpoint, uh, I'm sort of transitioning, um, you know, from the from the position of general manager. And um, at this point, I've. Uh, and just it's a gut feeling that it's the right time for me. Doug, what, what is the what is the timetable on this? Um, obviously, you're going to finish up the year as general manager. Um, will there be a new GM in place by opening day next year? What, what's the timetable? Yeah, and you know that's that's more of Mark's decision at this point. Uh, I've been told I'm still completely in charge, and until uh, that happens, but it's. Uh, you know, Mark being the businessman he is, he's uh, he's big into processes, and it was important to give him this uh, to give him this notice from myself. Uh, I've been taught. Mark and I talked about it uh, over the past year. At the end of last year, I, I said, somewhat gave him a heads up on it. Mm-hmm. We talked about it finalized in May that I would uh, get to this point. So yep. from that time, I think Mark's uh, timetable. He really doesn't have one. It's more important that uh, um, he picks the right person, uh, and that's why we're here in August, and we have more of the off season to uh, to go through that. But Mark will be 
like I said, in charge of that process uh, to do that. Now, Doug, I, I assume from your remarks that you, all, you anticipate remaining in at least some capacity with the Brewers, whether it's an advisory role or, or something like that? Yeah. You know, I, I've loved working here in Milwaukee, and I, that was part of my job. I could have easily just said I want to retire, I want to walk away from it, but very passionate about the Brewers, about the city of Milwaukee. And uh, that's the main reason why I want to stay in, uh, involved. I got an office. I'll still can remain my office in, at Miller Park. And, uh, and that I want to see things through. You know, we, we did some exciting things at the trade deadline this year that, um, I think is going to help the club in the future. And I just, uh, I want to be a part of that. So Mark's going to, um, lean on me with my 40 some years of experience and in, uh, in the, in the process and also in the future. Um, of the Brewers, but there's going to be someone that eventually will be in charge and making the major decisions. Doug, one of the, the one of the typical dynamics is that the it's the general manager that ends up hiring the manager. You know, this year a lot of us thought Craig Council was being groomed to you know ultimately be your successor. Now he's the manager. Would it be safe to assume that anybody that comes in and fills your shoes is um, it, it, that, that really Craig Council is untouchable at least for the, the immediate future? Well, I think again that. Uh Mark and I have talked about that, but I think Craig should feel pretty, pretty secure in that. And I think anybody that comes in would be delighted to have someone like Craig Council as a manager, uh, with his experience and coming off the field. That's part of this, what we call a generational move. Also, is we get, do have a young manager just recently out of the game, and and I think that's a big plus for whoever comes in here to to have someone like that. And you know that'll be part of uh, uh, the individual. Um, you know, coming in and uh, identifying that uh, that that could be important to have someone in place like that. I know when Mark bought the club, he his general manager was in place, and that was me. And I'd only been doing it for one or two years uh, when Wendy Feeling had hired me. But so I think that we he should whoever comes in should feel very comfortable that Craig is the right manager for what's going on. Um, it's interesting, Doug. I, the other night I was watching Moneyball again on, on television. That's that's been one of the, the sort of the dynamics that maybe has a little changed the industry, moving away at least some teams from the traditional. We depend exclusively on scouts to now we're going to look at the the saber metrics and the numbers. Is that is that the future of the game of baseball? That Moneyball type of stuff. Well, I think it's it's it's. Put itself into the into the game, uh, both in all the sports. Basketball is going through it too, and hockey, and, and all of that. I think the word analytics scares a lot of people. I think it's just a gathering of information and using that information to to uh, make your decisions. The the difference in our game in baseball, um, I think, is that you're drafting and signing kids that are 17 and 18, and there's still physical growth and development with them uh, they play in the minor leagues and that so uh, they may be four to five years they're not completely fully developed like uh, nba players or nfl players but so i think there's a huge scouting and development process of baseball that uh, is still always going to be a big part of the game and uh, meantime the analytics is um still i think it's still in the learning process i don't think it's been proven if it has been proven that there's a perfect model by analytics there would be 30 teams doing it. Right, Doug. Let me. If you look, 
only player to come in on scouting, there'd be 30 teams doing that, too. <laughs> right. Doug, as you look back during your, your tenure as general manager of the Brewers, again, going back to 2002, is, is there a moment or two that just really stands out in your memory of being, man, this, this, is, this is just absolutely tremendous? Well, the the C.C. Uh, Sabathia trade is, will go down as one of my highlights of my career. And then uh, the fifth game, Arizona, that was a great series. And uh, Niger Morgan the, hitting the base hit and Carlos Gomez, you know, crossing home plate. You know, there's only been two big hits here in Milwaukee Brewer baseball history, Cecil Cooper and probably Niger Morgan in the last uh, number of years. But those, those those two things stand out for me was and being able to do that in front of our um, yeah, it, winning that you know, fifth winning that fifth game in front of our fans who deserved that. I, I was there for game five. It was it was spectacular. Okay, let me ask you the let me ask you the flip side. I mean, because I mean, every day I'm sure you you look at all sorts of trades and you you say yes to one and you say no to a hundred. Is there one that got away? Is there something as you look back over the, the last decade plus that you said, "Gee, I, I I just that that I that was I'm I'm sorry we couldn't pull the trigger on that one." Um, I'm sure there is one or two of those, but I can't think of it offhand. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think that the one thing that we've we, we've made a number of trades uh, um, for players, and then we've lost them to free agency. Those are all things that I look back on that would have been nice to keep Zach Greinke. Would have been nice to, you know, to keep CC Sabathia. Those are the things you look back on. But I do understand why we weren't able to do that. Um, but those are those are sort of the dynamics of the game today. And looking back on it, I, it would have been great to be able to do that. It's just unfortunate we couldn't because um, you know they they brought so much enjoyment here uh, to Milwaukee. But you know there's there's a lot of things. I think just just this past July, the the trades in July that we made at the deadline, I think are is something that I thought was maybe not possible for us to do. As we do this, uh, this retool, and uh, I think leaving the organization uh, uh, in a better state of mind than a lot, in a better state than a lot of clubs that are out there that are, are maybe doing the same thing as us. I think it's got a, a nice, uh, got a good manager, a young manager. We've got some young players. I think our prospects are going to be rated in the top five to seven of the of baseball. So I'm still looking forward to spending a lot of time. Here in Milwaukee, uh, spending a lot of time at the ballpark uh, with our people, with the fans, and, and that. But I had to, it was a gut feeling that I had, it was important for me to let Mark know of my decision and transitioning so he can have an opportunity to, uh, to put his plan in place for the next number of years. Well, Doug Melvin, we, we wish you the very best. And I, I will say the, the one thing on behalf of those of us in the media, I, I've always appreciated the fact that win or lose, good times or bad, you've always been accessible and forthright and candid and, you know, being willing to discuss stuff. And, you know, you're in an industry where, where sometimes people aren't. And I think from the perspective of those of us who make a living asking guys like you questions, we very much appreciate that. And I think that's a testament to um, just a testament to your quality as a general manager and, and a person. Thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, thanks for joining us, Doug, and uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to talk sometime in the future. Best of luck.
We will. Bye now. <laughs> Take care. That is Doug Melvin, the general manager of the Milwaukee Brewers. If you're just tuning in, the Brewers um, just a few minutes ago uh, announced what essentially they're talking about is a succession plan. Doug Melvin announcing that he will be stepping down as the general manager of the Brewers. Um, the uh, Presumably the search for a new general manager begins now. Um, Doug is going to continue in that role and, until they find a new general manager. He's not really, there, there's not necessarily a time table, although you would figure that somebody would be in place sooner rather than later. But Doug Melvin has always been an incredible class act, and I certainly appreciate him joining us uh, this afternoon. Okay, Strauss Brands is looking to expand. They need to pretty much triple the size of their facility to project for growth. And, and by the way, the, the jobs, if you, you work at Strauss Brands, you, you have good paying jobs. I mean, the average job is going to be around 50 grand or so. Well, if you will remember the saga of Strauss Brands, they were originally going to leave Franklin and locate down in Milwaukee. This was one of the big gets for the Barrett administration. Strauss Brands was going to build its new facility in that Century City, which is like the old which is like the old AMC and Tower Automotive stuff. It's on Capitol Drive, what about 30th, maybe a little bit further west than that. And this was this renovated area, and the city of Milwaukee was hoping to bring you know, industrial concerns there to provide jobs for the neighborhood, etc. This was going to be a get, big get because they estimated that Strauss was going to bring a couple hundred jobs with them, good paying jobs, which is precisely what that neighborhood needs. So everybody was doing cartwheels about this until the local alderman gets together with some neighbors without anybody checking out what Strauss is all about. Plus, you add in a number of people not from Milwaukee who just don't like meat. We don't think we should have meat packing plants, etc. And, and ultimately, they start objecting to it. And Strauss Brand says, okay, you don't want us, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll pull out. And, of course, the big loser was the city of Milwaukee. So they're back in Franklin. They still need the expansion. So they make arrangements. They are going to move. They want to move to a different facility still in Franklin and larger, providing jobs, contributing to the tax base, all those types of things. And about two weeks ago, in a vote of four to two by members of the Common Council, they, they said, no, we're not going to give Strauss the permits it needs to expand. Now, this stunned a lot of people because, again, Strauss is a really, really good company. I mean, this isn't a problem company at all. And like I say, if you take the time to drive down to the facility now, you would not know it's a slaughterhouse. You, it could be a box company. It could be anything. You would not know this. And their new state-of-the-art facility isn't going to be any different. So when when Franklin did this, and, and what happened is you had four members of the Common Council who candidly caved into a vocal Minority. Oh, we hate this. It's going to cause all the problems. You know, the typical NIMBYs who were supplemented by a lot of people who don't live in Franklin, who once again don't like meatpacking facilities. They don't think people should be eating meat. Okay, fine. You don't think people should be eating meat? Don't eat meat. But the truth of the matter is lots of the rest of us are going to do that, so you need to have these processing facilities. So anyhow, the, the thing gets shot down by a 4-2 to two vote. Well, after that, the, the business community really starts to step up. And all these members of these businesses start to put pressure on the members of the Common Council, at least the four who voted against this, saying, what are you doing? What sort of message are you sending to the community? And last night, 
Um, the, what happened is the Common Council took this up again, and one of the four who had originally voted against this, one of the four aldermen or women, her name is Sherry Hanneman, she changed her vote and in a motion to reconsider this. And she said, look, I'm changing my vote because... Um, you know, what What happened is I, I got confused. I was sort of intimidated. Um, I heard from a lot of my constituents that we had made the wrong decision, which does prove that every once in a while, you know, public opinion does matter. And clearly what happened in Franklin was you had the loudest voices, this small minority of people who, who showed up and screamed, and they ended up influencing the initial vote. Well, once the word got out, all right, then I think what I would describe as the majority of people, maybe the silent majority, got back on board. So what happened is this one older woman, she changed her vote. The other three guys on the Common Council, the other three members, they didn't. But it was three to three, and the mayor of Franklin then got to cast the deciding vote. He voted in favor of Strauss Brands. So the bottom line of this is the permit's been issued. Strauss Brands will stay in Franklin. The jobs will stay in Franklin, and the community will benefit. And I guess the only indicator are this shows that when people recognize that you've got public agencies or public boards or elected officials who aren't doing what should happen, who aren't, who are being swayed, again, by that loud, vocal minority. And that's what this was, including lots of people who don't even live in Franklin. You can get it wrong. So credit, I guess, to the one older woman, Sherry Hanneman, who got it wrong a couple weeks ago when she voted against Strauss. At least she had the guts to acknowledge that she had made the wrong vote, changed her vote, Mayor cast the deciding vote, all's well that ends well. And in the space of a couple of weeks, uh, Franklin elected officials reverse, just by one vote, but they do reverse one of the most staggeringly stupid decisions made by a local board in a long, long time. That is good news. Jeff Wagner's 25-year career at WTMJ comes to an end. For the rest of the year, dive back in the archives with us as we bring you the best of Jeff Wagner throughout his career. You're listening to the best of Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We've got some breaking news here. Uh, bear with me for a minute while I bury the lead. Um, I started in talk radio in this market part time up the dial. Um, 1995. I picked up the I picked up the phone, called the program director, and said, "Hey, you ever need somebody to fill in?" And they said, "Oh, well, we'll take you out to lunch." And because the guys back then were always looking for excuses to go out to lunch, they took me out to lunch, and they were trying out a bunch of people. I happened to be the one that did it, and I happened to be the one that stuck. And so for a couple years, I did fill in while I was practicing law. In the summer of 1998, 25 years ago, WTMJ, the program director, he doesn't remember this, but he was the program director at the time, Steve Wexler, who's gone on to lots of bigger, better things. He had called me and he said, Charlie Sykes is um, going to take a sabbatical to go write a book. And we were wondering if you would be interested in coming in and, and doing his show for a month or so. So I said, yeah, that's interesting. And we, we cut this deal where I was going to be Charlie's permanent fill-in, and I was also going to do a Saturday show, and I was continuing to work and practice law. And that went fine. And then in the first week of November of 1998, what happened, and this actually happened leading up to that, but WTMJ had a, a syndicated show 
run by a woman named Laura Schlesinger, Dr. Laura, who preached, teach nags about family values and stuff. And, and that show was leaving WTMJ. So there was a vacancy. So at the time, uh, WTMJ management, John Schweitzer was the general manager and, um, Rick Belcher was the program director. They came to me and they said, would you be interested in doing a, a talk show full, full time? And I was, I'd been practicing law and things like that. And I, I went to my wife and I said, well, we've got this opportunity. And she says, well, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're looking for something different. And she said, as, as long as you're working, I don't care. And so I, I started at WTMJ the first week in November of 1998, which means two weeks from now, we will have completed 25 years. This program will have been on the air for 25 years for almost all of that in the same time slot. There was a brief couple months, but otherwise in the same time slot for 25 years. So I, we did it. And I, honest to goodness, I thought, okay, well, we're going to do this for a year or two, and I'll figure out what I want to do with my life and what I want to do when I grow up. And, you know, one or two years led to five years, led to 10 years, led to 15 years, led to 20 years. And like I say, in in two weeks, we're going to hit a complete 25 years. It has been a wonderful run, but no show lasts forever. And, And we're announcing today that I'm going to be retiring from WTMJ at the end of this year, the last show edition of the Jeff Wagner show on WTMJ is going to be Friday, December 15th. I'm on the payroll with vacation stuff through the end of that of December. And I think, you know, after the last live show on Friday, December 15th, we're going to play some best ofs or, or things like that and um, then kind of move on. It has been a wonderful, just a wonderful experience. And as I was saying earlier and saying to some people this morning, there's, I'm not saying it's unprecedented, but to have the ability to work on a radio station in your hometown in essentially the same time slot for 25 years, it, it doesn't happen very often. And I am deeply indebted to all the, the talented people that I've worked with both on the air and behind the scenes at WTMJ to, to allow that to, to happen. And I, I just I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. I also really appreciate what a class act Good Karma Brands, the company that owns us now, is because we we kind of decided this uh, a few months ago. We've been kind of working up to this. And a lot of times in this industry, people like me, on-air talent, they, they don't get a chance to say goodbye. You're just kind of like gone. And a lot of times when you're sitting there in July and you're saying, okay, well, I'm not going to be there in January, um, a lot of times what happens is management calls in security and they give you your banker's box, your box full of future endeavors, and they send you out the door. That's WTMJ has been absolutely wonderful because once we kind of came to this conclusion that the show was going to be winding down, it's been amazing, the the respect. And, you know, here, Jeff, how do you want to handle this? You know, what's the time frame? It's been a truly classy way to handle this, which is one of the reasons I always tell people, if you're interested in this industry and you get a chance to work for Good Karma Brands, do it. There's just no question about it because it's it's, and the way they've handled this has been just absolutely incredible and I, I mean that sincerely lots of people don't have that that option and I, I appreciate it more than I can tell you so the, the two questions I've been getting from people who who've known about this um the first question is okay well what happens to the, the time slot and the uh, my answer is I don't know <laughs> and and I don't think WTMJ quite knows I think they're they're working on this and all I can tell you is that you know after we 
I'm gone, and after we play the best ofs, I, I guarantee you that there will be something in this time slot, and I hope you listen, and I hope very much that, that you like it. So, you know, that that's going to be the case. The other question I get is, okay, Jeff, what, what are you going to do? And, um, you know, first of all, let me just say this at the beginning. I, I am going to dearly and deeply miss the daily interactions with all my teammates and my colleagues, and especially you. It, for, for people who've listened, whether you've listened for a month or whether you've listened for a year or whether you've listened for 25 years, I am going to deeply miss that. And, and I know that I am going to miss the opportunity to talk to you on a daily basis more than you're ultimately going to miss me. I get that. I understand that um, because there's always something that comes next. But I, I treasure and I treasure our relationships and things like that. It's just been a, a wonderful ride. So I, I understand all that. So what what are you going to do, Jeff? Well, the, the sh- there's a short answer and there's a little bit of a longer answer. The, the short answer is in the immediate term, I'm going to do nothing. <laughs> I'm going to do nothing. The, the, the deal was I got out of college in, in, in I'm aging myself, December of 1978. Uh, came back. I was going to start law school that following September. Came back to Milwaukee, went to work at an insurance company, the old time insurance. It used to be on Fifth and Wells. So I worked full-time, started law school. The entire time I was in law school, except for the first semester, I was a full-time student, and I also worked either full or part-time. Graduated from law school, graduated on a Saturday, went to work at the U.S. Attorney's Office that following the following Monday. Worked at the United States Attorney's Office. When I left the U.S. Attorney's Office on a Friday, went to work at a private law firm that following Monday. When I left that private law firm to come to, D- to TMJ, left on a Friday, started on Monday. So I have essentially been continuously em- employed, you know, working since, you know, January of 1979. So the short-term answer is at least for a brief period of time, my intention is to do nothing, it is um, my, my desire is to I, my plan is to chase my beautiful wife and my little dog and golf balls through the Florida sunshine for at least a little bit, you know, come in, in January. Um, the, the only firm plan I have is I have never in all these years, I have never played golf on either New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. That's changing this year because as soon as I can get a tee time, I'm, I'm going to be on a golf course, assuming it's not like pouring rain, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. And I'm going to just take a little bit of time and sort of chill out and sleep in and read the stack of books that I haven't had time to read and catch up on some of the streaming and just sort of spend some time with folks that I haven't had enough time to do because uh, of just the dem- daily demands of a talk show. And don't get me wrong, th- this this is a great job. It's just an absolute great job. But as I always tell people, it, it is a job. And every once in a while, I'll get texts from folks who say, oh, you only work three hours a day. And my response is, well, th- that's cool, because if if I'm making it look that easy, <laughs> then, then, then I'm doing a good job. But at least for me, I haven't figured out how to just kind of come in, open up the microphone, talk for three hours, and be able to sustain a show. There, there's hours and hours of preparation time that, that go into this. And so... Um, I'm, I'm going to be looking forward to taking a little bit of time and just kind of decompressing. That said, I am not ready to completely get out of the game when it comes to dealing with public policy issues and things like that. So I'm kicking around a few ideas. Uh, I, I really, until we announce this publicly, I really haven't started actually trying to put any of this into work. And like I said, I'm going to be on the payroll till the end of the year. So I, I doubt I'm going to really start taking taking steps to kind of figure out exactly what you're going to do. But for those of you who don't know, I, I, I describe myself as a recovering attorney, but actually I, I, I've kept my law license all these years. So I, I think 
after leaving WTMJ, I, I might look to see if there's some opportunities in legal fields ranging from maybe a chance to get involved in some advocacy for issues that are important to me. Um, might be just as simple. I, every once in a while, I think I'd like to go back into the courtroom and maybe, you know, try cases. Might be some suburban DA's office that needs somebody to come in for, you know, when some of the regular people are on vacation in the summer and handle court appearances for a day. It might be something like that. Might be something more involved. I'm, I'm looking to see what the opportunities are and who knows what's going to happen when the phone rings. The other thing that I intend to do, and again, I, I'm just, I haven't started putting this into, into effect yet. But one of the great things about doing radio talk shows is that the technology is such that you can you can do your shows from anywhere. Um, you don't. Uh, we, we've learned during COVID. I mean, I was broadcasting from my home office, you know, around here. You know, I, I've done shows remotely from my home in Florida. You can, with a certain amount of equipment, you know, you can do shows from anywhere. And one of the things I, I do, and WTMJ knows this, and there's no issue with this, I do intend to sort of look and see if there's potential for fill-in work across the country. Um, you know, a radio station, you know, somewhere, pick a state that might, you know, have a talk show and their Jeff Wagner goes on vacation for a couple of days and they might be interested in bringing somebody in who, you know, uh, knows his way around you know, how to do this. And so I'm going to explore that and, you know, nothing concrete right now, but I'm going to be looking into that as well. So it's entirely possible that, you know, maybe someday, six months from now, you'll be driving your rental car from, I don't know, Fort Myers to Orlando to go visit the mouse, or from Minneapolis to Sioux Falls, or from Las Vegas to Los Angeles, or from Austin to El Paso. And you hear this voice come on the radio, and it's you say, that sounds awful familiar. Well, it, it could very well be me telling, you know, the old stories to a new set of listeners. So it, it'll all work out, and I've got plenty of time to figure that out. And we've got plenty of time to continue our conversation because, like I say, I'm going to be here until December 15th. And I think WTMJ has some special programming planned around that. But I wanted you to be among the first to know that um, there's always a time for everything. And, and that time has come. And I, I'm very, very proud of um, uh, being able to last 25 years in, in this market full time at WTMJ. And I know that does not happen without all of you you know, listening, um, supporting the program, supporting our, our partners doesn't happen without the partners. And it doesn't happen with all the tremendous people that I have worked with at WTMJ over the years. Like I was saying, on-air people. And I'll, I'll do some name checks, you know, over the next couple months. But also all the people behind the scenes, all my various producers, all the salespeople. It's just, it's been an absolute wonderful ride. Um it's time, and it's funny because whenever I'd listen to people who had really great jobs, and I've got a really great job, who said that they were moving on, and they'd always say, well, it's just time. And I always wondered what that meant. And now that it ends up happening to you, you you know it, it's just time to find out what else is, is out there in life and to say, okay, well, I still want to be vital, but at the same time, I, I want to spend some more time with my family, and I want to spend some more time with my wife, and I want to spend some more time with my friends, uh, apart from the Five day, three hour a day, five day a week, 50 week a year, you know, talk show schedule. So that is, that is our breaking news. Like I say, I'm around till December 15th and, um, probably after that, I'll start trying to figure out what's going to come next. But short term, nothing. 
long term, you know, I, you know, maybe you'll, you'll, you'll have Jeff Wagner to kick around for a little bit. We'll see how that all works out. This is the best of Jeff Wagner, highlighting the best moments of a 25-year career on WTMJ.